The following audio is from Crossroads Church, a church in Lincoln, Nebraska, centered around building genuine community through authentic faith. More info can be found at lincolncrossroads.com. Amen, amen. All right, Acts chapter 5, we're just going to go for it. Are you ready? I've got about uh, three sermon series worth of stuff to cover, so uh, forgive me if I just run right to the front door and get right in. Acts chapter 5, anybody remember the last, the last message that we, that we talked about, the last passage that we talked about in the book of Acts? It was a really positive, uplifting message. You guys remember it? Ananias and Sapphira. Whew. All right, just to catch everybody up, if you're not familiar with the story, it's a really interesting story. I'm not going to re-preach Beth's message from that week, but here's how it basically went down. Uh, people in, in the community of, 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 of Christ followers, they weren't called Christians yet, they, they called themselves the followers of the way, all these followers of the way, followers of Jesus, they were living in community with one another, sacrificially giving, they were generous, they were awesome, and like people were selling like like, like property and homes and different things and giving all of the money to the church and blessing people in need. It was awesome. And there was this one couple, Ananias, and uh, her name was Sapphira, and they, they were like, hey, we're going we're gonna to sell this piece of property. Let's make it up on price for $50,000. We're going to sell it, and we're going we're gonna to take 30000 of that. I mean, like it's our property. Like we can do what we want, right? So we'll take some of it. We need to you know, do a few financial things here, but then we're going to give the like 30,000 to the church. And it's, a, you know, if they think that it's, it's, it's the whole thing, like that's fine. So Ananias by himself, he comes up and he's like, Hey, Peter, uh, here, apostles, church leaders, here's $30,000. Um, and he's like, wow, that's really cool. That's generous. I'm ad libbing a little bit. All right. And, and he's like, where'd this come from? He's like, we sold the property for $30,000 and we're giving you all of the proceeds for it. And he's like, really? okay, well, you didn't just lie to me. You just now lied to the Holy Spirit because he knows what you sold it for and you just lied. And then in the moment, he just drops dead. Anybody else that would just like totally freak out a little bit? And then if that's not enough, his wife comes in later. They go bury him. She doesn't know what's happened. The, 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 her wife comes, the wife comes in later, Sapphira, and Peter had the same, and she's like, hey, did you get the money? And he's like, yeah. We got it. Um, she's like, yeah, we sold the property for $30,000 and we gave it all to, the, to you. And she's like, he's like, really? No, you didn't. And the people who just buried your husband are going to come bury you. Boom, falls over dead. Now listen, let's just be real. I know this is a Bible story. Sometimes you're like, oh, that doesn't hurt. If that happened here, like there's a bunch of you who'd be like, you know what? There's a cult down the street way less scary than this place. I'm out of here, right? Like, that's intimidating. And, and there was this, there was like, well, let me, rather than just saying it myself, here's what Acts says. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. No kidding. <laughs> you can imagine how, how rumors spread both within the church and outside the church, but there was this fear that came over the church. And, and maybe, maybe your, your, your first thought is like, well, that's not good. Doesn't the Bible tell us not to fear? Well, there's this fear, this holy, reverent fear that came over the church. So we're going we're gonna to pick up in that spot right there. It says, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Verse 12, the apostles performed many signs and wonders 
among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. It's kind of an interesting thing that happened, all right? So let me just here, or just break this down a little bit. Okay, so rumors spread that people are dropping dead. Thank you, babe. Rumors spread that people are dropping dead if they lied to the church leaders, freaking some people out. Then those same people, those same leaders are going out into the streets and like healing everybody in sight. And so onlookers, those in the church and outside of the church are like, I, I don't know what to do with this. Like, there's, there's something scary about what's happening right now. But this whole healing people and like blind people sing and crippled people getting up, uh, giving up their crutches. And, I, and so what does it describe? How do they describe it? No one else dared join them. Understandable. Even though they were highly regarded by the people. A weird combination of responses, isn't it? But if you capture what was happening right here in this snapshot of scripture, you go like, okay, I guess that makes sense. Like clearly God is doing something. I'm not sure if I want to be a part of it yet. <laughs> and it says this, it says all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. I'll just hit on this real briefly. So, so, so how the temple works, I don't know what, when you picture the temple, how the temple works, there, there's the actual temple. And then so the priests would go in and, offer, and, and do all their priest stuff. Inside there, there was a holy of holies. Only the, the, uh, the high priest could go into that place and that once a year to make atonement for the, 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 the sins of, of the nation. And, but outside of that temple was like this courtyard, this, this large open air courtyard. And people would come there and there'd be a lot of things going on in the courtyard. It was a rather big place. And only Jewish men were able to go into the temple courtyard. But there was another portion, if you will, of, of the temple complex that was called uh, the, the, the court of the, the Gentiles. And within this area, there is a place called Solomon's Colony that was within this place. And in, this, in the court of the Gentiles, both women and Gentiles were able to go. And so this is just, just how this all works. So they would find a meeting place, but this new church um, elevated both women and Gentiles above what culture said. And so like, they needed a, a meeting place to be able to meet with the church as a whole. And so, you know, it doesn't give us a whole lot of reason why, but it seems to be a very, very logical place for the church to gather. Acts 2 says they met daily. So here, the believers of Jesus would meet in this section of the temple complex where everybody could gather for teaching and worship and the different things that they would do. Um, so here's, here's so, the, so they're in the Jewish community at large. Like the temple was like a, a central point of the, the, the life of the Jew in that time. And most people, most of the Jews, didn't accept that Jesus was the Messiah. So they just continued to operate under the old covenant law and the old covenant traditions and how everything used to work. And yet there was this group that had the audacity to show up in the temple complex and proclaim that everybody else in the temple missed the Messiah who had already come. But they kind of sort of kept in their little spot. 
So this is how it happened. They'd come, they'd gather, they'd worship, they'd teach, they'd have their other things. And other people who had come, and they were in the temple, and they'd kind of see what's going on, and they knew what was going on, but they weren't quite sure if they were ready to like, they, they didn't really, weren't aligned theologically, and they weren't really aligned doctrinally, but their lifestyle intrigued them. Right? So, this is kind of a, a snapshot of what it is. Have you noticed as we go through this, and it's going to happen a few more times, that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, will periodically, it's all narrative, and then periodically he gives like a, like a snapshot of what Christian life was like in that moment. This is one of those, right? So he talks about the fear of God. He talks about these, these, these miracles that were taking place, signs and wonders. And he, and he talked about this, this, this community that in a moment here you're going to see is a growing community. Verse 14. Nevertheless, so even though this was kind of the, the environment that, that, that was going on in the culture and in the church right then, it says, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. All right, so people were had, like, there was this reverent awe, and they weren't flocking to the gathering, like they weren't going to be seen right there. But, but in the day-to-day, in the conversations, in the observation of life, one by one, people started joining this gathering. And as a result of people giving their life to Jesus, of people choosing to follow Jesus, as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and they laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. So we see this this snapshot of the church early on. We're still in just chapter five. And what we see, we see the fear of God, the holy fear of God. We see the Holy Spirit's power, and we see a growing community. And then in verse 17, the narrative picks back up. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. Here's the thing. Sometimes we think, like, man, if, if we could just see miracles, then everybody would believe in Jesus. False. They saw, they knew, they witnessed the power of God, and it really just kind of shows you how dark the darkness was that these Jewish leaders were in. There was healings and signs and wonders taking place, and, and it wasn't like, Wow, the power of God. It was, oh shoot, they're infringing on our authority. And so what did they do? They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. This is interesting. The apostles, so far, like we've had some of these guys been arrested before, but here it seems as if, it doesn't say all of them, but the way that they leave that, there's no descriptive terms on that. Well, we get the impression that most likely, they found the 12, threw them all in jail together. So now, now the leaders, imagine being in the church right now, right? Like, so people are falling over dead. Now our, now our leaders are going to jail. Like, this is, this is crazy. And they're all in jail because of the jealous religious leaders. And then verse 19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said. And tell the people all about this new 
life. Okay. Something caught my attention. This, this reading through the book of Acts in this verse that I'd never really caught before. The angel shows up. Like, and, and here's the deal. Anytime, any, anytime, this is just kind of a side note. Anytime you're like, man, I could see what God was doing here. God is always doing so many more things than you think that he's doing. Always. So the moment you're like, oh, I figured it out. I can see, now I can see what God was doing. You might be right. Just, but that's probably the tip of the iceberg. So I'm not going to say I know what God was doing in all of it, but I wonder if there's a part of this that's like, God allowed all of the apostles to get arrested together with the full intent of sending his angel. Remember God's sovereign. He orchestrates it all. To sending his angel to a central gathering point of all the apostles in, in, in such a supernatural way that was going to get their attention to give them two commands. He says, I want you to move your teaching from Solomon's colonnade, and I want you to go into the temple courts. You were kind of in the public's eye. I want you, I want you to take it to him now. And, I, and here's why. And this is the part that really got my attention. And tell the people all about the gospel. Explain to the people all about how Jesus is the Messiah. And tell the people all about covenant theology. No. Is the gospel, does that mean the gospel? No, no. But here, here's the deal. The angel is saying, I'm going to give you a new strategy. The people aren't listening to your doctrine right now, but guess what? The people have taken notice of your life. So the angel shows up and he tells the apostles. Now, I'm not saying that they never preach the gospel. The gospel is the foundation of their life. The gospel is like Jesus dying on the cross so that he's the only way to heaven. He took away our sins so we could have life with him. That's what the life is built on. Don't forget that. But in prison, to the 12, an angel shows up, a messenger from God, and says, I need, here's what you need to do. Let me, let, me, let me adjust your teaching strategy right now. You've got their attention with your life. Now it's time to tell them about the life. I'm not saying don't preach the gospel. I'm just saying it's time to explain the way that you live. This is what's happening in this story. If, I, if, if we were to zoom out and we were to look at our culture today, would we say that as a whole, culture is begging the church because we're so authentic and so on fire for Jesus and the works of God are being manifest everywhere we go that the, all of the culture is begging to know why we live the way that we do? No, not really. But are there certain people in your life who've been watching you? who don't quite understand you, but respect you. Friends, it just might be time to take a step beyond where you've been before and start to tell them about your new life. To start to tell them why you are the way that you are. That might be a big conversation for some of us. Um, 
But here's the deal. There's a thousand ways to go. What does that mean, this new life? Well, let me just, based on the text that we're in today, let's talk about what this new life meant for the believers in Acts chapter 5. Okay, let's just, we could go a lot of different ways with this. But let's just look at the text. Three characteristics that I want to look at today. Three characteristics of this new life. The first one is this, the fear of God. This is an interesting concept because the number one command in Scripture is do not be afraid. And yet, from cover to cover, we, we, we see this concept, this characteristic of Christ's followers as being those who fear God. So let me give one example. And honestly, in today's society, it's even harder to use this example. Even this example is starting to deteriorate a little bit because of culture, but do you know, I want you to picture a good man. I'm talking about a man. I'm not talking about the chauvinistic macho type. I'm talking about the one who is strong, not just, or not, doesn't even have to be in physique, but in, 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 in righteousness and truth. I'm talking somebody who's strong. Somebody who's good. Somebody who stands for justice while at the same time as gentle as can be. A man that if he has children, his children love when he walks into a room and and they jump on his lap and feel so safe in his embrace. But also the same man that the scariest thing that they could, this little child could hear is just wait till dad gets home. If you had a good dad, then you understand the fear of dad. Now listen, I understand there's this sometimes hard to, to totally identify in your own experience. I understand that. But remember, God is not your dad and your dad's not God. But this is what a good dad looks like. A dad that the kid is never afraid, doesn't walk in fear of until you step out of line. Not because I'm going to get abused, but because my dad is so good and so just, he's not going to put up with my shenanigans, right? That I know because, not because my dad is bad, not because he's fickle, not because he's irrational, not because he's evil, not because he's selfish, but he's so good that when I'm not, it gets a little bit scary, I know there's consequences to pay. That you don't walk in constant fear of dad until you step out of line. Right? This isn't the type of of fear of dad that like when dad reaches across the table to grab the dinner rolls that the kids flinch. That's not a good father. But the ones that know what righteousness is and sets the standard and holds their children to it. You see, sometimes we think, we, we, we look at God as like he has multiple personalities or something. There's like the Old Testament God, and then like he died, and then in the New Testament, we have the New Testament God, and he just wants to be your BFF. When I was five, and when I was 17, my dad related to me differently. 
And yes, all humans change in, to some degree. But when I was five and when I was 17, my dad didn't really change, but the way he related to me changed. And when I was five and I was 17, and then again, now that I'm 40, my dad relates to me in different ways. Your God today, our heavenly father, is the same God that we read of in the Old Testament. That's hard sometimes to wrap your brain around like how all these things coincide. Jesus says this. Jesus says this about God the Father. He says, be afraid of the one who has the authority to send you to hell. Paul says in numerous times that we ought to uh, live holy in fear of the Lord. Throughout the New Testament, those who like were God-honoring people were often referred to as those who feared the Lord. The wisest man who ever lived, uh, Solomon in, in Proverbs, wrote over and over and over that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so, listen, I, I, I preface this with, with this picture of a good father because I want you to understand that we are not supposed to walk around in constant fear that God's going to strike me. He loves you. He's a God of grace and mercy. But at the same time, Here's the deal. I play with my kids. I, we have a good time. We, we cut up and we joke and we have fun. But every once in a while, it doesn't happen very often, but every once in a while, one of my kids might take a step that's past playful into straight disrespectful, and then the tone changes. And then we're coming back. You know what I'm talking about? Friends, you're God who loves you and welcomes you on his lap. He's the same God who determines your eternal destiny. He's the same God who is so holy that when Adam and Eve rebelled, there was no possible way for his holiness to interact with their sinfulness without a mediator. When we come to God, there ought to be not, not a, I'm afraid of God, what's he going to do to me now? but there ought to be a sense of holy fear. Like, I know you're good. I love, and maybe it's overquoted, but I love this, the, the classic line from C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When speaking of Aslan, the, the Jesus figure, the question is posed, is he safe? And the answer is, safe? No, he's not safe, but he's good. There's a holy fear of God that accompanies those who understand a healthy relationship with, with us and the creator of the universe. God loves you, and he's gracious to you, and he welcomes you, but he's still the author and finisher of all things. In the church, in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead, and they were like, oh, so, so this is God. <laughs> You don't need to wake up afraid. But there ought to be something inside of us. There ought to be something inside of us that there's, there's enough fear of God there that makes me think twice before I say one thing, even though I know it doesn't accurately represent the truth. There ought to be enough fear of God there that before I flip out on that person sitting next to me because something didn't go well in my day, there's enough fear of God in me that goes, man, I know how much he loves them. This, this, is, not a, uh, this is not behavior appropriate to somebody who's a child of God. Do you understand? 
And it's a characteristic of the church that I think because of the goodness of God's grace and because of the smallness of our ability to capture both grace and fear of God all together, we, we, we tend to lean one side or the other. So those of us who love God's grace and mercy, me too. In fact, it, it, it's the leading way that he leans into us. I mean, Romans chapter 2, do you not know that it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance? This is how he interacts with us now. But let us not forget that he is holy. What we see in the early church, the life that the early church walked in was not just a flippancy with God, but there was a holy fear of God that affected their daily lives. Number two, the second thing that we see, the Holy Spirit's power. The Holy Spirit's power. Friends, we need the Holy Spirit's power, don't we? Do you remember how Acts 1 started? You will receive power. I mean, this is what Jesus said. Like, he left, and he's like, okay, this is what's going to ca- characterize the church. Here we go. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on them. Though the Holy Spirit comes on them, marks the beginning of the church in this era that we live today. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses. You will receive power. Now, listen, I just want to hit something briefly. I'm not going to do it justice, but I want to hit something briefly. This idea of power, like I realize we're a non-denominational church, we're kind of independent, so we have people from a variety of backgrounds and a variety of of, of church experiences and, and a variety of perspectives on the supernatural at work in the church today. So let me just, let me just hit it from, I'm going to try to stay right here in the middle of, 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 of what Acts 5 is talking about here. So on one hand, I'll say this. I do not, I cannot find, when I search scripture, I cannot find a single thing in scripture that unless I brought my preconceived notions to the scripture, I can't find anything in scripture that would point to the fact that God changed the way that he works in his church. I, I can't find anything. I mean, there's the whole old things have passed away, all things become new, but uh, there's, there's the old, um, where prophecies will cease and there's knowledge will cease or wisdom will cease when the imperfect is gone and the perfect has come, but nowhere in that text does, you, you can't come to the conclusion that that's when the church is established or the Bible is written without coming with a preconceived notion. Nothing in the text would indicate that. And so when I read scripture, I can't, I, I, I can't read it without saying like, man, God gave power to his church, not just to those people. Healings, it's got to be for today. Speaking in tongues. I mean, it, why did it stop? I don't know. It, it, it didn't. It's still there. Prophecy, it's still there. Supernatural things are still in effect today. There's nothing in the scripture that would indicate that it stopped. Then there's the other, let's look at the other side. Then there's some, there's some who say, like, look at the way this happened. And like Jesus says, by his stripes we are healed, and and therefore every sickness is already healed. I just have to claim it in Jesus' name. That that, that I just need to claim the power and the authority that I have because um, if I'm a Christian and my faith is big enough, nothing that comes against me will prosper. Therefore, I will never be sick. And therefore, like, I'm not going to speak sickness because I'm already healed by the blood of Jesus. Well, that doctrine tends to break down with reality. 
And, and don't get me wrong. Don't forget, I just said, I believe in the miracles. But last time I checked, the death rate hovered somewhere around 100%. Um, and, and if Jesus didn't want anybody to be sick, ever, that if I had enough faith, I'll never get sick. Listen, most pe- some of us, Okay, I didn't mean to go morbid on you, but just, just track with me for, you, for, for a minute, okay? Uh, some of us are going to die tragically. I hope that never happens, but odds are some of us will die tragically. Car accidents, unforeseen things. Most of us are going to die the same way most cars end up in the junkyard. Some a crash, sure, but mostly because their parts stop working. And they can't run anymore. Right? The medical field would call that, diagnose that as some form of sickness or disease. So, where are the 2,000-year-old Christians? If I'm never supposed to be sick, if I have enough faith that God will heal everything, that all I have to do is claim the healing that's available to me, where are the 2,000-year-old Christians? Sickness always eventually wins. And that doesn't mean that God's not good. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't heal. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't work in supernatural ways. But here, as humans, we find it easier to land on really concrete things because it's easier for us to process. So it's easier for me to say, this miracle thing doesn't happen anymore because I just don't see it very much. Or it's easier for me to say, I'm never going to get sick because I'm healed by the blood of Jesus. But the reality is we live in a broken world following a merciful, powerful God. And for whatever reason, sometimes he heals people. And sometimes he gives divine answers through somebody else. And sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he holds our hand through sickness. Paul said, three times, I called on God to take away this thorn in my flesh. And sometimes God answers us the same way God answered Paul. My grace is sufficient. So I say all that so that wherever you are, here's the deal. Some people land over here. Some people land over here. I'm going to guess the large majority are somewhere in the middle going like, I don't really know where I land. I feel the tension of both of these things. I get it. It's okay. But this is what I want to take away. This is what I, where I want to land. The power, the Holy Spirit's power, supernatural power, is available to those who are following Jesus today. Does it mean every single sickness will be healed? No. Does it mean you have power to heal every, walk into a hospital and heal everybody? No. Does it mean that the bigger your faith, the more uh, special your spiritual gift is? See, that's the other thing. We're like, if I have enough faith, like if I can be a super Christian enough and I get to this level, is uh, read the New Testament. Somebody might have the gift of healing and that's awesome and it's super cool. Somebody else might have the gift of service. 
Use it with everything you've got. Paul says it this way in, in, in Romans 12 and in, in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, like, if your gift is leadership, lead. Don't wait for a position. Leadership is influence. So with everything you've got, influence the next generation. Influence the people who look up to you. Use it big. If, you're gener- if, if your gifting is generosity, give and give and give and give. Don't let Fear come against the spiritual gift that God has given you. If your gift is discernment and you're able to see things deeper than people around you are able to see them, speak truth. If your gift is prophesying, speak encouragement to the body of Christ. Listen, don't try to, uh, uh, don't, the goal is not to get the most spiritual of gifts. The goal is to take the gifts that God has given you and use them for the building up of the church. The gifts are for today, the practical ones, like leadership and giving and, and service, and the spiritual ones, like healing and prophecy and speaking in tongues. Like the, it, it's, it's all in the Bible. The goal is not to try to get the best one. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, it'll help you if that's where you're at. Paul says, does everybody have this gift? No. Does everybody have this gift? No. Does everybody have this gift? No. Does everybody have this gift? That's not the goal. The goal is this, is like, are you walking in the spiritual gifts that God has given you? Because friends, there is a, and, and, and I think these two things go together. There's an element where we're like, I, I just, I, I view God and my relationship to him with such flippancy. We're BFFs. We're bros. God, thanks for dying. Like, I, man, that's so cool. What's up, God kind of reality that we forget that this is a spiritual life that we've entered into. We are a spiritual people. And from the beginning, you will receive power. Are you walking in the power of the Holy Spirit that God has given you? Three characteristics of this new life that the angel of God shows up in prison and says, hey, church leaders, this is where I want you to focus right now. You've caught their attention in the way that you live. Now go explain to them what this life is all about. One, there's a holy fear of God. Two, there is the Holy Spirit's power. And three, the third characteristic of this new life, it is a growing community. It is a growing community. In some way, shape, or form, we're all searching for community, aren't we? I mean, the introverts and the extroverts, we might search for it differently. Certain of us are all about like, hey, I want the energy from the people, from the party, the gatherings. I want to meet new people. I love that. And you are energized by that. Others of us are like, if I did, can I just get one friend who likes me? Like, I just want one, one person who likes me. If I don't have that, I'm good. I don't need any more friends, okay? That's cool. God make us different. Most of us are some kind of combination of the two. But here's the deal. I don't want to necessarily focus on the community as much as it is the growing part. See, this community, they met in a moderately, in a pretty public place, and they grew together, walking this life together, this life of fearing God, this life of walking in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But this is what happened. When they walked closely with Jesus, their numbers grew. You know, there's this thing that you hear in church as a pastor, you hear this a lot. Um, 
Man, it's, it's not about numbers. It's about depth. I don't, it doesn't matter if we grow numerically. We just want to grow in depth. Why in the world are those two metrics like have to be opposites? And we do that. We judge other churches that way. If a church is growing quickly, then obviously there's no depth in it whatsoever. Or maybe they're doing what, I don't know, we read in the Bible. They're, that's an option, okay? Here's, here's, a, here's, again, a quote. It's not me. I don't know where I heard it. You've heard it before. Healthy things grow, but it doesn't mean that everything that grows is healthy. Healthy things grow, but so do weeds, and so does cancer. You can't tell that something's healthy by its growth, but a lack of growth over time is probably an indicator that there needs to be some more health. I don't want to be a megachurch pastor. I don't think I have the gifts to be a megachurch pastor. But we better grow. And here's what's interesting. Here's what's super interesting when I read Acts. They had some strategic plans to reach unreached people in areas outside of where they were meeting, right? They commissioned missionaries to go. And we do that. We send support to missionaries around the world. We take missions trips to Guatemala. We, we go to places to help see the kingdom of God grow outside of where we're at. But you know what you find a serious lack of? Is strategic planning around like door-to-door evangelism. It's interesting. You, you see a, 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 a huge lack in uh, how, how to, you know, win friends and reach people for Jesus, right? We, 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 there's, a, there's a lack of this like, what's the strategy? But instead, you know what you see? You see a commitment, an, a commitment to live the life of Jesus. And it's contagious. People are like, now that's not anything I've seen before. And in the story, it starts out with like a, I don't know what I think about that. (laughs) But I respect it. The problem is, if we don't have these first two pieces, if there's no fear of God in us, There's no holy fear of God, holy reverence that drives and dictates the way that we live our life. And there's no supernatural activity of us engaging other people through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we think we're going to be a growing community because we're just going to tell people, like, you should join this club. Like, it won't work. You see, the reason the church grew when the, when the angel came and said, hey, listen, here, I'm going to give you the new instructions. They've seen the way you live. Now go tell them about why you do it. Go tell them about this new life. Go tell them about why God is so holy and you walk in the fear of God. Go tell them why and how that you work and operate in the power of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? People started showing up. You know, there's a story. I love this story. It's told of Kathy Truitt, um, who's the CEO of... uh, Chick-fil-A. He's in a board meeting and, and there's, there's all these execs. This is, this is maybe a couple decades ago. And their biggest competition at the time was Boston Market and they were booming. So you can tell where this story is going. 
Some of you are like, Boston what? Um, Boston Market was opening stores like faster than they could keep up with. And all their execs are sitting around the table and they're like, what marketing strategy? What are we going to do? How are we going to do? How, how are we going to grow? How are we going to beat the competition? How are we going to market? How are we going to grow? 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 And as the story goes, Kathy Truett bangs on the table with his fist three times. Everybody grows silent. And he says, if we get better, they will demand that we get bigger. Interesting uh, business tactic. Apparently it worked. But I can't help, I can't help but see the spiritual parallels. Guys, we don't need, I, I don't need to try to like twist your arm to go tell one person about Jesus tomorrow. Like I, I don't. But what if every single one of us were like, I'm just gonna live, choose to live different. I'm gonna actually allow this, 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 this relationship that I have to God with God, I'm gonna allow the fear of God to, 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 to dictate and manage the life that I live. I'm gonna to strive to walk and pray for faith that I could walk in the Holy Spirit's power and leading. And that freaks some people out. Good. Because if you could live this Christian life on your own strength, then you're probably not doing it right. So what is it that God has been speaking to you? To so take this step of faith. And you've been dragging your feet because of all these different reasons. Maybe it's tell somebody about Jesus. Maybe, I don't know. But maybe it's just like, hey, I, I need you to work on this area of your life. Friends, people don't care that we're Christians. They don't care that we're at church on Sunday morning. They're going to care if they see Jesus in you. They're going to care if they start seeing something, even if, it's, even if it rubs them the wrong way. Like, I don't know, like, like people dying when they lie to the church leaders. Okay, what? I'm praying that's not the case. But it's not lie this week, okay? But what if the fear of God and the power of the Holy Spirit of God were prominent enough in our life for people to see I can almost guarantee you that we'd be a part of a growing community. Let's follow Jesus. Let's see where he takes us. Because his plans for you and his plans for us are bigger than our plans for ourselves. I can guarantee you that. Father, we just thank you for your goodness to us and your grace to us. God, we're not trying to manufacture anything God, we don't need to build our brand. God, I want to build your brand. I, 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 I want to live for you so wholeheartedly that it completely demolishes any preconceived notion of what Christian meant in the lives of unbelievers who know me well. God, I want to live with such an authenticity. God, I want to listen. I want to live with such a, a sensitivity to your spirit. God, I want to live with the fear of God. God, teach me what that means. God, you're giving new mercies for new seasons. 
and in this season, God, may this be one of our authenticity. We want something real. We're done with the fake. We're done with the things that are done in tradition for tradition's sake. We're done with going through the motions. God, work in us. We give you our whole lives, every bit, and hold nothing back. Move in power. Move in power in our lives, God, and whatever gifts you've given us for the building up of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Crossroads Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Crossroads, please visit lincolncrossroads.com.